This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, part of Hemispheres. Today's guest in the studio is Arti Palodia, who is a research associate with the South Asia Institute. She also has her doctorate in history from the University of Texas at Austin, where she specializes in the history of modern South Asia. Welcome, Arti. Hello, Chris. Good to be here. Today we're going to be talking about the Indian independence movement. Um, Where should we begin our story? So we'll begin after the First World War, because this is when Mahatma Gandhi or Mohandas Gandhi comes back to India. He has been in South Africa for about 21 years, and he's back in India in 1919, and which is when we see a different phase in Indian nationalism. Where had he been? He'd been in South Africa, correct? Um, yes. And what brought him to India? So Gandhi had been in South Africa because he was working as a lawyer for the South African Indian community. And he'd been active in various movements to fight against discrimination for Indians in South Africa for greater justice. And he comes back to India and starts becoming active in the ongoing nationalist movement. But what Gandhi does is that he takes it to a different level. And he turns a movement which was more constitutional and more based on lawyers and turns it into a mass movement and gets it out on the streets of India with a more wider population being involved in the nationalist movement. And this starts after the First World War. So how did he do that? I'm thinking about the irony of a lawyer managing to turn what had been a legal struggle into something more populist. But how how was he able to accomplish that? Gandhi is doing that by tapping into cultural symbols. So he uses religious symbols. He makes sure that Congress, which was the main nationalist body, is not just limiting itself to using the English language, but he's using all of the Indian vernacular languages to reach the non-anglicized population of India, which is the majority. And so he makes use of various Indian languages, cultural symbols, religions. He would have prayer meetings where people could come in. He would make use of folk dances, songs, stories, which your average Indian would be comfortable with. And he ties all of this into the nationalist message to make it with a more broader appeal. So since you had mentioned that the nationalist movement did predate Gandhi, how did the other Indian nationalists, the ones who'd already been agitating for independence, react to this guy who's been in South Africa for 21 years suddenly showing up and uh, starting his own movement. So at first, the old guard are concerned with the direction in which Gandhi is taking the movement because they are not comfortable with mass movements. They're not comfortable with street protests. Some of them turn violent, and this is a cause for great concern. But over time, they begin to realize that Gandhi's way might actually work out in the longer run because the constitutional methods that they had been using, they were getting blocked out by the colonial state, and it did not lead to the results that they wanted. So over time, they're willing to try a different approach. And that's where Gandhi becomes more and more prominent. And also, he's very popular among the Indian public, because they see him as the Mahatma, the great leader. And so you have this push and pull factors with the old leadership allowing Gandhi to come in, as well as the Indian public welcoming him. 
How did the British administrators react? At first, they have no idea what to make of Gandhi, because he's also starting his various experiments right now, where he's dressing in different clothes. So he has given up his suit, and he's no longer dressing as an Indian equivalent of an English gentleman. But he's wearing Indian clothes. He tries to dress himself as a farmer, and as simple clothes as possible. And the British have no idea how to understand this figure and his complete rejection of. English culture, and they also do not trust him when he says that he'll keep all his movements nonviolent, because a lot of them did end up becoming violent, and so it takes a while for the colonial state to figure out as to how to deal with Gandhi. Okay, so that was Gandhi. Who are the other major figures in the Indian nationalist movement? So there is Jawaharlal Nehru, who ends up becoming the first Prime Minister of India after independence in forty-seven. And Nehru is a generation younger than Gandhi, but he, over time, too, understands that Gandhi's mass movement methods are going to be pretty popular in India. But Nehru is also active with the socialist wing of the nationalist movement, and this is where he makes his own mark. Another figure is Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was also a lawyer. From the same part of India that Gandhi came from, and is very popular among the Muslim population of India, and Jinnah goes on to become the most important, the most prominent leader of Indian Muslims when we get to the 1940s, and especially as we get closer to independence in 47. So this is over the course of the 1930s that these various representatives are beginning to. Rise to prominence through the nationalist movement.、Um, how does World War II change things? So, what happens in the Second World War is that Indian nationalists, especially the Congress Party, which was one of the nationalist parties, the Indian National Congress, and I should mention over here too that the Congress in India it's a nationalist party, a political party. It's not the Congress as in the U.S. It is not a legislative body. So it is. It is important to differentiate that, and so the Congress Party decides that they do not want to support the British war effort during the Second World War unless they get a guarantee of independence, because they do not understand why they should be fighting this war as long as they are a British colony, and so Congress decides to withdraw support during the Second World War. And the colonial state, the imperial government, at this point has no tolerance for any of、um, Congress's opposition. So all the main leaders are rounded together and put in jail. And so now Congress is a party without any key leadership. But there is another political party called the Muslim League. Where Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who I just mentioned, is becoming more and more popular, and they make the decision to actually. Work with the British in this time period as a way to increase their following among the Indian public, because the Muslim League had a difficult time in the 30s when Congress is becoming more and more popular, while the League is having a hard time getting votes in the provincial elections in India, which were first held in 1937. And so the League uses the Second World War as a time to increase its popularity, and the League and the Congress. We're facing difficulties in the 30s because the Muslim League wanted greater representation for Muslims, while Congress is not interested in having any special provisions for any minorities. And the League 
their main concern was that since Muslims are going to be a permanent minority in India, so you have during the British times, the colonial times, before partition, Muslims make up about one-fifth, a bit more than one-fifth of the population. So they're going to be a permanent minority. And their concern is that how is this representative form of government, which India wants to have based on the parliamentary system, how is this going to affect them? So they're asking for greater provisions and Congress is not willing to give it to them. And so this is where we see the main um, competition and conflict between the League and the Congress. And this carries on through the 30s and 40s, leading us to independence. So the League was able to sort of try to gain some favor with the British administrators by supporting them during the war. Is that what they were essentially going for? It's Yes, that is what they were going for. And especially since Congress decided to withdraw all support for the colonial state and they were put in jail, what the British needed was people to work with um, during the time of the war. And the Muslim League, as well as other smaller political parties, were willing to be the allies during the war. So when was the idea of partitioning India into for lack of a better term, Hindu homeland and a Muslim state. Uh, When was that first floated? So the question of a separate homeland or a different homeland for Hindus and Muslims, this idea is floating around in the 40s. But the interesting thing is that we do not know where the boundaries are going to be because nobody's talking about any set boundaries. Some are saying that the two provinces of Punjab, which is today partitioned between India and Pakistan, and the province of Bengal, which today is partitioned between India and what is today Bangladesh. And some were floating around the idea that these provinces would not be partitioned and they would separately be part of a different state. That was one proposal. Another proposal is that you do not need two different states, but you would have two nations. So there is a Hindu nation and a Muslim nation, and both of them would have a common military, so common defense, common communication system, common foreign affairs. So it's one state, but different nations in it. And people are just coming up with different ideas, in many ways also using that as a bargaining tool when it comes on the round table with the colonial state. And so we do not have any set boundaries until the very end, when the actual partition takes place. Interesting. And so at what point does partition become the inevitable outcome of the independence movement? So this would be after the Second World War is over, everything's done. And the Labour government comes to power in Britain, and they decide that they want to leave India as quickly as possible. So they appoint a new viceroy in 47. This is Lord Mountbatten. And Mountbatten comes to the conclusion quickly that he will not be able to come up with any sort of solution which will satisfy both the Congress Party and the Muslim League, the two key political parties. And so he decides to come up with the partition proposal. And this is in 1947, in February. And then by August of 1947, within a few months, partition is already done. And that is when we have independence as well as partition, both along the same time. 
Can we just take a moment to uh, explain where the name Pakistan comes from? So the name Pakistan was actually first proposed by a group of students at Cambridge. So these were a group of South Asian Muslim students at Cambridge, and they decided that this separate nation or state or whatever was going to come about should have a name. So Pakistan is, P stands for Punjab, the province of Punjab, and A is the Afghan people. So this would be the Northwest Frontier Province, which is there today in Northwest Pakistan, bordering Afghanistan. And then the K comes from Kashmir, which is today quite a problematic region between India and Pakistan. And then there is the S standing for Sindh, the people of Sindh in Pakistan today, where the main city is Karachi. And then the Istan is the Baluchistan part. So for the Baloch people, they get the Istan in there. And conveniently, the whole word Pakistan just meant land of the pure. So they get to bring in all these various ethnic groups and these various regions And it comes up with a name which means land of the pure. Now, I can't help but notice that what's not included in that name is Bengal, which was originally part of Pakistan. Yes. So this, in some ways, you're already seeing the 1971 conflict, which is not coming for many years to come. But so what happens with Bengal is that that, too, is quite a bit of a Muslim population. And all these regions that I just mentioned were provinces or states which have a Muslim majority. And so the idea is that perhaps those provinces which have a Muslim majority should be a separate nation or perhaps even a separate state. But our students at Cambridge are only seeing this one region of South Asia, what would become Pakistan, and they're ignoring their Bengali-speaking brothers and sisters because they are so remote. These are two regions which do not have that common a culture. The languages are different. They share a religion, yes. But there are so many other differences that they're not even thinking of them when they're coming up with this acronym of Pakistan. Right. So uh, going back to the partition of India, there were also a number of princely states in South Asia that were basically forced to pick. Is that not correct? That is correct. Yes. So there were about the South Asia that we have today before partition, I would say about one third of the region was under princely states. So these were territories which are under the control of Indian kings, or in some case, even queens. And so this is not under the part of the direct British Empire. It is indirect rule. And for the princely states, nobody really pays any attention to them because all the dialogue is happening between the Congress and the Muslim League and with the Hindu-Muslim question. But now what is going to happen with the princely states? Are they going to get independence too? Or are they going to merge with their neighboring British Indian provinces, which would later become India and Pakistan once partition has been decided upon? And what the Congress wants is that these princely states should merge with their neighboring provinces because they want India to be a republic and they do not want to have any kings or queens. They definitely do not want the English crown, and they also do not want any in India. And so they push for the merging of all of the princely states. Now, a majority of the princes were forced to sign on the dotted line, so to speak. And it was Congress, as well as the last viceroy, Mountbatten, 
sat down with the princes and explained to them that this is what you're going to do. And a lot of the princes actually understood that once the British withdrew support, they have no way to support or defend themselves. And a lot of these territories were really, really small. It could range from a few towns forming a princely state to some of the bigger ones, such as Kashmir and Hyderabad, where the size of a lot of European countries. Mm-hmm. And so it, it took a while to convince the bigger states to join India or Pakistan. But by 1948, so 47 is when we have independence and partition. By 48, all the princely states have merged with one of the two successor states. So August of 1947, independence, as I understand, it was India one day and Pakistan the next, mm-hmm. or do I have that reversed? What happens? So they pick the date, the midnight of 14th, 15th August. And the state was actually picked after they consulted astrologers. Interesting. Because it was an auspicious day. And the next day wasn't coming for many, many weeks. And the British want to leave India as quickly as possible. So they pick the 14th, 15th. And Pakistan gains independence 14th August and then India 15th August. And it's at the stroke of midnight is when you have the actual transfer of power. And Mountbatten first attends the independence transfer of power ceremonies for Pakistan. And then he goes over to Delhi and does so for India. And so it's within a 24-hour period. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, Mountbatten remained on as governor general of India for a while? Yes. So he did remain on. Nehru, the first prime minister of India, asked Mountbatten to stay on as the governor general. And Nehru's goal for doing this was so that the continued negotiations with the princely states could happen more smoothly. Because let's remember, Mountbatten was a cousin to the queen as well as the king. And he's an aristocrat himself. Right. And Indian princes preferred negotiating with a fellow aristocrat and also to smooth over relations with Pakistan. Because once the British officially end their empire in India, they become in some ways this neutral party. They always had their agenda, but it's they become a neutral party which we can negotiate with all of these different political powers involved. Partition, of course, is also known for the uh, tragic human effect that it had on the population. Could you talk a little bit about what sort of spurred on what is, I believe, one of the biggest mass human migrations in history? So what happens with partition is that the language used, especially by 47, is that there needs to be a separate state, which would be a homeland for Muslims, because Pakistan would be where Muslims would be safe, and that's where they could lead the type of lives that they want. And this language gets repeated again and again. And India, by default, in many ways, becomes a Hindu state, even though Congress kept on talking about how it's going to be a secular country. So what happens after official partition, or even during the time of the transfer of power, is we have this mass migration that involves about 12.5 million people. And these are Muslims who are going towards what is going to become Pakistan, and Hindus, and a group which is often forgotten, Sikhs, are moving towards what is becoming India. Now, the Sikhs picture in this because the province of Punjab was a heavily Sikh-populated province. Mm -hmm. And they decide to move towards India. So you had Sikhs living in Lahore, 
which went to Pakistan, they cross over the newly formed border and go off to India. So we have mainly Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs combined to about 12.5 million people. And these are people who are forever leaving their homes, their villages, often with nothing with them except the clothes that they're wearing. And people are going over by foot. They're going over along with their animals by trains. And this is one of, as you said, the biggest mass migrations in human history. What was the fallout of this sort of traumatic birth of these two countries, and later three if we also include Bangladesh? Um, are we still seeing the legacy of this sort of tumultuous start uh, in South Asian politics? So partition definitely lives on in the memory of the people of South Asia. And because the birth of the two nations... On one level, you have this very smooth transfer of power with the elite political leaders, but the situation on the ground is very different, where you have people basically forced to go to a different country. And there was anger, there was grief, often accompanied by violence. And this trauma of partition lives on in all the three countries, once you include Bangladesh, and you have very good oral histories in the recent years being compiled by talking to survivors of partition and how they had to begin their life anew in a different city where they did not know anybody and they're starting from fresh at at an advanced stage in their life. Well, um, that's really all the time that we have for today. But uh, Arzi Balodia, thank you for being with us. Um, this has been another episode of 15-Minute History. We'll see you next time. Thank you. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.